0: Welcome to Syntalk. The Syntalkers around the table today discuss the word and the world. We'll think about the interrelationship between language and the world and how they make or constitute each other. Is language only for communication? What exactly is grammar and how does it come to be? What does it mean to be ungrammatical? Are thoughts silent speech? Is the world discourse independent? What is the scope of the non-verbal realm? Where does art live? How does it work? Is external language necessary? How is the world processed in a mind? What is meaning? Do we think in mental ease? What is the long-term future of meaning-making, perception and language, and how will it change? We are pleased and privileged to have three SYN talkers with us here today. Mm-hmm. Professor Ashok Agluskar. He is Professor Emeritus of Sanskrit at the University of British Columbia, at Vancouver, Canada. He has mainly worked on the grammarian philosopher, Bhartra Hari. Jibesh Bhakshi, he is an artist with Raks Media Collective, a contemporary art practice based in Delhi. He considers their art practice to be a mode of kinetic contemplation. And Professor Pritha Chandra, she is a professor of theoretical linguistics at IIT Delhi. She works on syntax and morphosyntax of South Asian languages. So, Ashok, why don't we set the ball rolling with you, with, with the core question. Let's get to the tough part first. Um, where do you stand on this question? of What is this relationship between the word and the world, between language and the world? How do they make or constitute each other? What do the different scholarly traditions have to say about that? Where have we reached after thousands of years of thinking about this question?
1: There are two ways in which we can bring the word and the world very close to each other.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: One is uh, that we will not have any classification, any mapping, any kind of uh, schemata of the world unless we had word. So that's obvious in a way. That is classification and uh, all other ways of making sense of the things around us depend on language. That's one way the second way is the physical world actually arises from the basic form the most fundamental form of language
0: the physical form arises
1: from that yes that seems very odd in the beginning mm-hmm. but if you consider that this uh, this fundamental form of language is subtle speech and very it can be considered to be atoms it can be considered to be some subtle energy um, and uh, that principle, language principle, therefore, can be be a cause of the world, just as atoms have the the capability to be considered as cause of the world. It's uh, subtle things always are considered to be the cause of the products which are relatively gross, and therefore, um, the world which is considered to be re- relatively gross can be reduced to these subtle principles and these subtle-like uh, atoms, they can also be considered to be the cause of the world.
0: And this is this is not being meant in a metaphorical way. You mean this in a somewhat realistic way.
1: In the Indian tradition, not only metaphorical, but the second way I mentioned is very seriously taken. Mm-hmm. And, and which uh, school would this be? That would be the school of the grammarians. That would be the very Vedic tradition itself. Right. Why are the Vedas given so much importance? Because their sounds are considered to be potent. The mantra sounds are considered to be potent. How do they become potent? Because they all ultimately go back to a cosmic sound, Om, Pranava, and uh, that that is supposed to be the energy behind the creation. So, so
0: this is not to say that subtle sounds, such as the few that you mentioned, create words and thoughts. They, in fact, create the physical world as well.
1: That is one view also. Mm-hmm. And most people would not object to the uh, view I stated first. That is, we need language to make sense of the world. M- most would say that's commonsensically acceptable. Right. But the other one cannot be tasted in in the labs it cannot be right away accepted but uh, there are several mystics several great souls who have confirmed that they uh, feel the language the base the uh, vak tattva, the very seed Substance, of life yeah. the very seed of language inside and uh, this is found in the vedic tradition this is found all the way up to the sikh tradition omkar and Tatsat, that is very commonly accepted Similarly, in the mystic Buddhist tradition you find it, Jain tradition you find it. So this is very widespread acceptance of uh, a relationship that seems odd to us at the beginning.
0: And what is your take on this?
1: My take on this is that yes, we nowadays live in an age where we want evidence or proof of anything in the lab. And perhaps we have gone too much in the direction of uh, what what we can prove in the laboratory. It's better to uh, again see that the, it may be the reality that when people are meditating, when people are doing spiritual practice, not only the instruments that modern scientists use are required, but also the... Acceptance of the fact that while doing this, the human being, the observer himself may be undergoing change. And if the observer becomes like a yogin, more proficient, more capable of subtle cognitions and so on, then there is really not that much odd in accepting uh, the, the view that uh, the seed of language is also the seed of the world.
0: And is this meant in a kind of matter-energy equivalence kind of way? Uh, that sound is a kind of primordial energy and energy, you know, I mean, think of it in terms of modern physics and so on as it can be translated mod- into yes. matter and so on.
1: The modern terminology does not have exact parallels in the old Sanskrit or Prakrit sources. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is like that. That is, it is analogous. It is uh, uh, very similar in. The structural role it plays,
0: and the and this line of thought, and then we'll go to some of the others. Has this been a minor river of thought coming down several centuries, or it's been fairly central, um, and and a major line of thought?
1: It's one of the major lines of thought. Right. There, there's no doubt. There is no saint poet in Indian history who has not expressed this one way or the other. Uh, so there there are works that begin with this kind of thought, so it is major. It's uh, it's not something just stuck away in the l- l- long fabric of Indian thinking,
0: right? And Where are you on this, Pratha? This uh, you're a linguist, obviously you study intricate patterns and this and that of language per se. Um, but where does the shadow of the world fall on the language? Um, what is this interrelationship for you? Um, we, we can start someplace general and we'll, we'll make it more obscure as we go.
2: Yeah, we can start from the very general conception on the hypothesis that we have in linguistics, which is called the sapir of hypothesis. There is an absolute version and there is also a um, relativistic version, which is basically the strongest version is that uh, you see the world only through words or through language. The other is that uh, it's a relative one. You know, it's uh, you may see Um Part of what Ashok was trying to say is it's definitely right. I mean, I actually agree with that. That um, You mean the, the world, second conception? I mean, the, yeah, the idea that you have, you understand the world. I mean, the world is there. My, this is my take on it. But the world is there. But how we uh, conceptualize it, how we perceive it, is definitely through one of the modalities. And the modality here is language, one of the modalities.
0: Can one it, of the modalities. Modalities, so. of so. course, you
2: can have other senses as well. Um, and I'm sure, you know, for people who don't speak verbal verbally, for instance, through speech, um, you know, they also have a way of looking at reality. So we make sense of the reality, which is there physically. But uh, as human beings, we try to make sense of this reality through the modalities or through the capabilities we have through the, let's say, if I can use the word, cognitive abilities that we have. So whether it's vision, whether it's language and language is definitely one of those modalities through which we make sense of the world. Right, And words definitely become very important, though I would also like to stress that... Um, what, what is a word? Exactly. What is a word? So do we take the word as a composite whole um, or do we take it as something that has internal structure? Right. Uh, so if you take boy, um, it corresponds, it, res, it refers to something out there in the reality. Um, but of course, our conception of it, I mean, it... it, it the, 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 the object boy could be much more than just the word boy. But our conception of that physical reality is taken in through that word boy. But if you look at something like boys, the S, that is the affix that is added to it, uh, that affix adding renders or gives it a new meaning where we are looking at the plural aspect of it. So a singular boy is no longer the actual meaning of boys boys, right? You will have to take a group of boys. Um, and that sir is given that or that s affix has a meaning. So this is what we... Um, so the s
0: has a meaning.
2: Yeah. In fact, the, in, in linguistics, the term with, we with, use...
0: With internal representation and in this, that in our brains or minds. Yeah. So
2: what? How the way we understand these small affixes or even like boy, for instance, which are more uh, content, they have content. Uh, the sir has content as well, but they're all called morphemes. So the word, word, um has little significance in linguistics unless we understand a word as a morpheme right a morpheme is the smallest meaningful unit and the sir or the s affix i'm using the phonetic sound uh, sure. for it the phonetic form for it um the the s or the sir uh, has a meaning so therefore it is a morpheme now if we try to understand the world um, but sir by
0: itself has no meaning, right? It has meaning only when it is functionally deployed. Exactly.
2: But does it have a mental representation? So, when yeah. the speakers That's an use one. the sir, do they uh, have a mental representation? Do, do they actually have a meaning attached to it? Now, this has been tried out with um, experiments where you give the child a um, new word like right? right? And then you say, then you create a context where you're asking the child to create, uh, to create a word out of, uh, for multiple of those objects. Right? So you increase the number of those objects and you say, now what is that? And the child says, wugs. Now it means that there is a mental representation for the affix. For the and therefore, there is a meaning. The child knows that the S-morpheme or the S-morpheme is, has a meaning. It's, a morpheme, it's, it's a, There's a representation Anyone that the child has. what is a little
0: has. unclear to me, Pratha, is how, how, how is one establishing that there's a mental representation for it? I mean, why aren't there other reasons why it is being deployed? Because, you know, I think the mental representation part is a little bit of a computational processing kind of point, right? There's something right. happening. How does one get to that?
2: Well, mental representation means that it is psychologically real to the speakers. Again, I'm using another jargon, Go which ahead. we yeah. often use in linguistics. Um, it, it basically means that um, even though we are using language for communication, language ultimately is a system. It's a grammar. I think the word grammar is very important here, although which essentially which means knowledge, mm-hmm. a system of rules. And um, native speakers of any language will have these set of rules as part of their subconscious knowledge. So if you ask anyone uh, what the rules of their language are, obviously they will not be able to say. But if you give a sentence to a speaker and say, will you be able to uh, decipher whether this is a good structure or good sentence of your language, that person will be able to say that. So there is it's it's it means that the person is aware, subconsciously aware of the rules of the language. Similarly, when we go back to the affix and I say mental representation, it basically means that the S affix is something that the person has as a representation in one's mind or cognition and attaches a meaning to that. So that is what I mean by a mental representation, that it is something which is real for the speaker, maybe part of his subconscious, his or her subconscious knowledge, um, and you need to have the right context to get that out of him or uh, her. Um, why is,
0: probably there's no answer to this, but why is there such a thing as grammar uh, at all? I mean, is there, so languages necessarily would be grammatical? um, Why is there such a thing? You you know what I mean, Ashok? I don't even know what this question means, to be honest, but... um, well, Why are languages grammatical? I mean, I don't know. It's probably a circular question uh, um, because they need to be grammatical it's, to it's, be language.
1: It's a good question to ask. But let me first of all try to uh, yeah. hopefully add some more explanation to what Pratha said. Uh, the, you are asking meaning with the idea that it's denot- denotational meaning all the time. But in addition to denotational meaning, there is grammatical meaning. The grammatical meaning consists of relationships between words. Right. We cannot point out to it and say, this is the way it is, this this is the relationship, because it's not concrete, it's not something tangible. But uh, the other meaning, denotational, well, we, we, tra- standard traditional Indian example was ghatta, patta. These are the things we can uh, uh, touch and show. Then, well, that's, those are nouns. They're, when nouns, sometimes, sometimes adjectives will be actually indicating color and other things in a concrete way. So that's that's possible, Um, so that's one thing. Secondly, about why is there grammar? Uh, Because we are dealing essentially with the activity of creating a scheme to talk about the world, to understand the world, and wherever we are creating a scheme, we are planning. And every plan has to have certain principles, it has to have items and it has to have axioms that they connect connect each other. So, so
0: therefore, the fact that languages have grammar or are grammatical, does it say something about the world?
1: It mostly does. Sometimes, of course, there will be mischievous uses of language. Then you could uh, say that doesn't reflect the real world. But that also is deliberate and that also is possible precisely because you have accepted language's capability to reflect the world. I think
0: the question is whether, and again, the question is whether language is grammatical because of some aspect of the world. Um, Is is the world determining, but, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. we should let you think about that for, a few minutes and jump to Jibesh. What, what does some of this mean to you, Jibesh? I mean, and and is this... Obviously, one could be talking about boy or boys and words and specific denotations and otherwise. Um, but there's so much more that art does, right? And there is um, probably a non-linguistic, non-verbal kind of realm where something still goes across. Um,
3: so well, I, uh, what I can share with you is a certain kind of... Uh, kind of a problem that one deals with. Uh, recently, we were in an observatory. Uh, it was an art project by an artist called Rohini Devasha. Basically, a lot of contemporary art is creating context and situations of gathering and, and observing the world. So she took us to an observatory in Alwar. Do you see the night sky, the deep sky? So we started with Venus. It was fine. And then we saw kind of the Jupiter. And we were about 15, 20, a lot of young people and some uh, little older, little mature, it's so different. And there was there was an amateur astronomer, Ajay Talwar, who was taking us through this deep sky. And we saw Saturn and frankly, it was very underwhelming. Uh, and Jupiter also underwhelming. was... Underwhelming, it wasn't this uh, f- it wasn't, full so, page color. No, So yeah. so we realized that seeing and observing that deep sky you have to unlearn rapidly what you had seen before, even to make it intelligible to you. That you are seeing Saturn, and the thing is that that is the Saturn is one billion kilometer away, and you are seeing the light from Saturn reach your eye, and it's quite a kind of a moment. and and it's uh, and we could see the shadow on Saturn of its own Saturn's own shadow on its ring because the Earth was, uh, Sun was placed in a certain way, but that object called Saturn. Was not, we didn't have what we thought Saturn was, what we thought Saturn through the models, through the photographs from so childhood, the, 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 is not the Saturn we saw. The,
0: the label Saturn yes. had been
3: attached to a certain image, which yes. is not the so, image. So, what happens is the, the, there is a kind of partition or a kind of opening up in your head that what you are seeing through this technology called telescope seeing something probably what Galileo had seen, seeing probably if hundreds of amateur astronomers goes endless, travel all over to see that moment, is something that is that you need to appear for you if you've untrained your mind off the way you've been trained to see Saturn. So it's a very circular way. I'm going to see Saturn because I've been mobilized to see Saturn, because I've seen amazing picture of rings and things. But what I see... A quiet little object in the sky. When in your the time horizon of it to even think one billion kilometer is a bit complicated. So what happens is that there is a search for language, which is to unpack your unseen. Well, you you have to undo the unseeing of the world, and you have to make intelligible what did you see, which as an experience was very frugal. So as an and and what you're saying is beyond being at loss for words. No, it is not loss for words. It's a search for words. So there is a silencing and a search for words. I think a lot of art appears like that. Art appears in that intersection when your comfort of having seen the world is withdrawn and something appears which may not be all, may not be something which is a bit uncanny, which is a bit not very sure of its objectness. And then it reappears uh, and that, that intersection, that is where we search the word. That is where if I have to communicate to you, I can't take you to see the Saturn, but I have to be able to communicate to you that power of the presence of the Saturn. And like all of us started joking, saying Saturn is the most beautiful thing, not to be afraid of. Shani ka dasha no, it is like that. It's it's an incredible object. No, so but, this you, is,
0: but you feel like even in that moment when you're observing something or experiencing something, you feel like words are necessary.
3: Yes, because I had to s- communicate. I can't take a picture of that Saturn. Uh, I have to communicate it to my friends, my lovers, my my students, or whoever I meet an experience that is very unique and which is which is searching a speech. So this gap, this this is the gap in which most of us art, artistic experience or artistic practice stays with. I'll take you one more example. it will make a, It is the bad boy problem. It is the bad boy is that you, you, we are surrounded by objects. And if you take, for example, I was telling you the other day, go to metro, they will always scare you of objects. The, that there is an unidentified object is a threat to you. You check your pickpocket. They will, your things will be taken away from you. But if you do a yeah, there is a lot of research which shows that most of the time people get back their objects when lost in transit, whether in taxis, whether in metros, whether in train. 80% of the time people get back their objects. People actually return, especially taxis and autos, they return. So we have a world of objects which are threat, which are precious, which are inertial, which can be taken away from you. But, you know, there is a lot of forces around it. But there is also the world of objects that we inhabit which is generous in a way, which has a, which has a life which is which we are care for each other. There's a caring to that object. So
0: So this,
3: is, this is is the point that this world
0: of words which purportedly describes the world
3: is inauthentic, a little inaccurate? No, it is it it sees the world in a certain way and then it is able to make an instruction of the world which may be away from the care of the world that you're part of. So this disjunction between the care of the world and the instruction to place the world in order may be... So For as an artist or as an art, contemporary art practice, most of the time we are working in this interstices between the way the object has traveled around us and the way the instructions around it is moving and the way the care or the life, the life, the social life of the object is producing other territories, other ways of looking at the world. So it is the bad boy, you know, they add a word bad boy to the boy, and then it completely changes the orbit, you know, another layer gets added to it, which completely dist- distract us from even looking at that object. So in that sense, our work is like, Jupiter is an object in that skin, an object in the sky. It is as speechless, speechlessness making and as as joyful, as thinking of an object whose life is instructed away from you and bringing it back to cognition in a, f- in a way that makes it appear enchanted or appear with a little more mystery or mischievousness.
0: Are words necessary?
1: Yes, but uh, let me make one clarification which perhaps will help all our discussion. Mm. Uh, we, are at this moment, we naturally think of individual concepts such as uh, word... Morpheme, you know, and we take them as if they are floating unrelated to anything else out there in our conceptual world. But uh, uh, all these are part of a beginningless stream where what we have, for the sake of convenience in analysis, separated as word is really part of a big family. And therefore, words always come with uh, shades, with contours. And uh, they have to be treated as uh, very valuable things that we have. Now, to come to your precise question... That's <laughs> you know, a good point. Yeah. We, to, to your, as to your precise question, it's not a matter of whether we need words. We will do nothing without words. That is, we have no choice in that matter. And those the only choice you have is to sit quietly, with uh, absolutely quietly, not uh, you know, communicate with anyone, but even in our mind, whatever we are entertaining in such a meditative sort of state is really connected with a lot of history in it. So,
0: I think the question is whether, uh, and, and you know, in, in the couple of examples that Jibesh pointed out, if it was not lost for words, but he, it f- felt like he was looking for words. Now, is is direct? Observation possible, unmediated by words.
1: Uh, except in the state of moksha, nirvana, it's not possible. And that's, that counts me out for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. No, but that, that is, theoretically, we have to accept that possibility. Hmm. We, if we are uh, really making a theory of language and the world, we have to accept it as a possibility. Whether it really comes about, whether it really transpires, that's another matter. But as theoreticians, just as in mathematics, they think of possibilities which are really uh, beyond any ordinary man's capability. But we have to do that so that we understand our thinking better. And But th- words are inventions, aren't they? Yeah, words are. Inventions? No, not always. That is, we don't know. You see, suppose you say words are inventions and their relationship with a particular meaning is established by convention. By convention and now, Yes. It's somewhat arbitrary. Let's start with that kind of assumption. When was the first relationship between word and meaning established? It was, it can be established only by words. So it is really anadi, beginningless. And that's why we have to say that words are beginning less, uh, many meanings are beginning less, the relationship is beginning less. So this is how we have to think.
0: But then, how does new meaning come to be?
1: New meaning comes to it because of usage, different. That is so, through there, new combinations. There, there was uh, you know how elastic, how flexible word meanings are, was illustrated in uh, in several articles, but in one Marathi article, for example. In our, uh, early eras of uh, uh, Nehru, Nehru age and, uh, you know, you know Indonesia, Sukarno was the leader. They, the word Bandung, the place name Bandung, was very commonly used. Now, if you can say the word Bandung refers to a physical space, it's a kind of city in our our experience, and if you say it's going to remain constant, how can you explain? I can say that's a bondung dog. Okay. Yeah, correct. I think that's an interesting point. Like, we how... we can keep on changing, and that's bondung of a picture. You know, I was bondungly sad. You, know, you can you can and contextually you can understand those meanings. It's, you may not be able to describe them. You may not be able to you know, put parameters around them, but you understand. So meaning is flexible. And even what we consider to be precise, fixed meaning, you'll see there are so many gaps between what we say the meaning is and what the actual experience tells us. For well, Now, uh, you know, Jibesh said about uh, Saturn, a very distant object, but even about the chair in which you are sitting. Uh, I don't see the back of your chair, but when I use the word chair, it represents the whole object to me. It's, uh, you know, th- th- that's the case. The light that is we are getting from this, from Saturn or any other uh, resplendent object, is um, really thousands of years old, sometimes millions of years old. So our claim that we are seeing Saturn is scientifically suspect. That's but we, the... we 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 need correct. So this is how it goes. So words are convenient carriers of the meaning. They keep on changing. In, we normally speak of words that seem to have shape and some kind of color, a concreteness about them. But the word water, for example.
0: Do you think the apparent stability of words and language, by extension, is a little bit illusory? It could be misleading.
1: Yes, but let me complete this water. See, We use the word water. All languages practically use the word water, as far as we can deduce. And uh, uh, the, what is the image of water? Same word refers to a drop of water, same word refers to an ocean, river, and so these are called mass terms. You know, uh, uh, sometimes we cannot uh, precisely have precise word and we say idam kinchit in Sanskrit or kaiteri in Marathi. You know, that would be, we are using a phrase as a new name for that object. In effect, that's what we are doing. Uh, we uh, we, we Regular words don't do the job So we we uh, invent a phrase That will somehow express What we are trying to express And uh, it works So language is uh, quite changing Even in uh, a short while All the time
0: How stable is language, Pritha?
2: Well, it depends look. on what you mean by language uh, If you just uh, look at words So you can create words But I think again um, the moment you extend the definition of a word to what I was in, uh, you know, just uh, a few minutes back, I was stating that there's internal structure. So it means that there's a, there are constraints on what you can make. Right. Uh, but words also, as, uh, you know, as was pointed out in the discussion, um, that words also change according to the context. So if you can, to give you a very simple example, if you say um, a run, which where it is a noun and you can also say run daily, I run daily where it's a verb. And um, so for sure, depending on the context, you can change the category itself, right of of that word. Um, right. But so morphology, at least it seems like when it's when it's these simple words, then you can create new uh, words for new objects. So if there is a um, an object between let's say new object or new technology comes up, you will create a word for it in a language. You can. Um, but the but moment... even
0: that is even that is not entirely unconstrained,
2: yeah, um, the moment... how,
0: how is history falling on that word, on that new word or neologism? you can come up with anything and. Would it stick?
2: You can, but of course, the idea is that, you know, you need enough people to start it using it. It fit a technol- into the yes, world. And- exactly. <laughs> Technology yeah. needs to be, uh, you know, uh, used by multiple people and the community needs to get used to that. And then, of course, the use- usages also get bigger and bigger uh, because you can change a noun into a verb or an adjective. So that keeps on happening. But if you t- talk about language or think about language as, as grammar, which is syntax, structure, sentence structure, then language doesn't change that very quickly. Hmm. So word invention is fine, but when it comes to uh, sentence structure, it takes a lot of time before a language can suddenly change its entire grammar and become a completely different grammar. But
0: does it? Sure.
2: It does. Does It it does. So from Old English to Middle English, um, a huge amount of difference. One small trigger and a huge amount of difference. English used to have... uh, you know, things like case, uh, you know, for for instance, these markings that come after our nouns, John, nay, nee, so they would also have a lot of, or John, co, so they would also have their own markers like them, uh, like these markers. Also, you would find a lot of, uh, I think, ge- English so also had the old gender. English
0: or new English is different grammar altogether.
2: Yeah, so you a grammar means a stable state, right, a mental state for any given language, Uh and I'm I'm talking in more mental terms. There could there's also something called universal grammar, which all languages share. That's the set of principles, set of constraints. Just like for instance, we have eyes of different hues and colors, but the vision, but the, the visual system that you have in all humans, irrespective of whichever continent they live in, uh, they will have the same vision system. So there are constraints for what you can see. Now, your eye color may look different. Uh, you may also have different, um, you know, uh, some people may have cataract on their eyes. Some people uh, may have long lashes. Phenotypically, they may look different. But, the, but there is an universal language for the vision system. But I'm talking about, when. so there is an universal grammar in the same way. But I'm talking about, let's say, mental grammar. So English has a set of constraints, a set of rules, rules. Um, that every English speaker will have. Then you will also have um, a set of rules that every Hindi speaker, depending on what you mean by Hindi, let's say Hindi spoken in Kanpur or Hindi spoken in Delhi, they will also share these. So grammar takes longer time to change.
0: Does does art have something like grammar? Is there is there something common? that by, I don't, it's, first, it's difficult to circumscribe art itself. Yeah, there's uh, a big debate. See the debate of dem- like what does not work, what what is in the nature of a constraint, and because I think as as Pritha is pointing out, it's not like you can just create anything. I mean, See,
3: the, a- one of the big problem with art is that the demarcation of its boundaries have always been a difficult job. Like science produced its own anti science or pseudoscience. science, you know that it's always this demarcation problem by which knowledge. Expands itself and also tries to say that I am this. So you wouldn't you wouldn't point at something and say this is not art. That that problem of twentieth century is that. It sounds and wrong, and maybe yeah, because that that ability to say it is m- much more in trouble in art to to condition its uh, boundaries easily. So the bound. The, so one of the most fun thing of being in art, of being in contemporary art, especially after the last 30, 35 years where, and it has a longer history, is that an object or a sign or a color or a, or a gesture may completely find a new reverberation and a new kind of uh, constellation around it, which then starts acting as an art. See, 19th century, a large part of the world was separated out by saying craft right. and art. So that division was made and we fell into that division. So that division now is under re-examination. Like in medicine, you we were all discussing, like the shamanistic practice was all now has been looked as medicine. Similarly, all kinds of Yunani, Ayurvedic, everything has been now looked at as new forms of medicine because you are searching new forms of healing. So the boundary question by which it has been managed and institutionalized has is reworking itself in the popular life, also in our conversations, also in 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 kind of intellectual formations. Same thing's happening with art at all time. So the question of what would constitute art is in the practice itself. I can't see I cannot leave that question and practice art. So I have to keep on asking that question. That's why being artist now is more fun and most difficult because you have to continuously ask the question what is art to be able to practice the art.
0: No, but if you don't go to the fringes and let's say stay with what is Almost unarguably called art. Mm-hmm. Would would it would it have something which is the equivalent of universal grammar? I, do, is there something that kind of binds them all together?
3: There has been attempt, but I I don't think it is a successful attempt. Nothing in that sense binds the thing that we call art from one part of the world to other part of the world. So that what is they, the
0: equivalent of ungrammatical art?
3: I think um, most of the art is ungrammatic. ungrammatical. So, I think the ungrammatical, the disobedient, the bad. That's
0: the question. Because there are there are ungrammatical sentences that may do a much better job of communicating whatever and then we'll come and speak with Ashok on that. But you know, you're a curator. There are things they look at and say, no, nah, this is not right. And you, I'm sure. No, you, as a curator, we never look at,
3: as as we're never uh, judging the, uh, the art in art content in it. What we are trying to understand is what kind of propulsion or kind of pull that it is creating something. See, so fundamentally something that it may be very, very something so, that is so pulling you, you in.
0: You were quick to agree that there is such a thing as ungrammatical art. Whatever yeah,
3: that means. So the, what is that? See, the, the in a in a sense, that something that scrambles. Something that, uh, you know, recently my mother had a little fall and then she's a little old and then she... Her temporal logic got scrambled in her head after the fall, usually on old people, this happens. And I sit next to her and keep on talking to her is and not talked so much before. in this way. The reason is the way her temporal logics are working out, she may forget one year, but she vividly would remember one year, same day, one year back in a way that I've never seen her remember before. Now this scrambling, auto scrambling, is a kind of a it's a kind of very poetic though she would she is functioning normally but she's is there's a lot of scrambling i think art operates at that level it 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 scrambles like when we learn to uh, sign as children the first thing we write that uh, our name and then we strike it off that striking off is the gesture the artistic gesture you know that is what makes us you will see your early signature you've struck off your names <laughs> to produce the person in a sense you know so this 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 gesture is available to all of us. Some takes it to little more excavation, interrogation, little more conversation, little more pushes it. And some keeps it withdrawn in their lives and some enjoys it with others, you know, like this. But I, I'm more interested in this. What are these gestures that actually propel the art or artistic in us, you know,
1: or the art in us? Even in grammaticalness, uh, universal grammar and specific grammar of a specific language like English, we have to keep layers in mind, are they, they, levels. Universal grammar at one stage becomes so nebulous, so undefined, but it's still there. Just as to to give you an equivalent on the art side, you cannot have a picture without some kind of frame. There may not be frame, physical, I don't mean physical frame, but it has to have sides to it. No one is saying there will be a picture without any boundaries to it, correct? Similarly, you'd, we haven't come across a language which has affirmative uh, sentence, specific, but no negative sentences. So that's part, of, is that grammar? It's difficult to say. But this is a constraint that's found there. Something similar you'll have on the side of art. But, but anyway... Where, where do these boundaries lie? But that's the fun of finding out in the case of each language, you know. That is, we even if we just say there are such boundaries, there are such constraints, uh, it doesn't follow that we have to identify all of them.
0: Does it make sense t- for there to be such a thing as boundary?
2: I think of... any mental or cognitive ability will have constraints. By boundaries, I would understand constraints, right? We just cannot do everything we want. I mean, even our perception of the reality, um, the way we look at a tree, for instance, uh, why do we get only this particular picture of the tree in our mind? And every human being does that. And of course, there are constraints like how the light is falling on the tree, at which from which angle are you looking at the tree, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, so there are constraints on everything. So why not on language? And we know that there are sentences that, that can make sense, but those sentences will not have we'll have this idea of that this doesn't fit in my grammar i'd never say this right
0: so that's so, that's like a psychological experience but ungrammatical sentences to keep it simple um, can also communicate with equal effectiveness do you find that odd
2: um well you know uh Meaning, now the, we basically come to the question yeah, of meaning, meaning, whether ungrammatical sentences can have meaning. I think sometimes we um, we impose meaning, we can impose meaning, because context is a little bit more than just a sentence, which actually shows us that our language is a system uh, which is different, or at least working in parallel with other cognitive abilities. So we create an ungrammatical sentence, or we, you know, I mean,
0: consciously created. But concept. there is sufficient context for... Exactly,
2: exactly. So we can say, you know, um, something like... I mean, I, I find it difficult to create a sentence like that, but something like, you know, um, a red platypus um, up the up the stairs ran. Now, this is... Since English is a rigid word order language, mostly, uh, this sentence is something that native speakers of English will not use or not produce. And yet we find that we can create a context where this makes sense. I mean, we try to make sense of it. And we say, well, be, there has been a little bit of scrambling around, but it uh, we can create a sense out of it.
1: Green idea, sleep furiously, was the, one of a the
2: A perfectly <laughs> grammatical sentence, but well, that's meaningless. For, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the, the one that you just gave about
0: platypus, ran stairs, whatever. The meaning is perfect, but the sentences, the grammar is wrong.
2: Yeah, Exactly. I mean, you can you can impose a meaning on it. You can create a context, a world, a possible world in which you think, okay, fine, my language may have been like this, but I get the exact same meaning. And I think what the speaker is doing is is turning this ungrammatical structure into the most grammatical form that she can think of and then giving meaning to this. So there is I think there is more processing, cognitive processing happening when you read this ungrammatical sentence and turn it into a grammatical structure. So what's
0: the link between truth, value and meaning?
2: Um, so, in
0: there's obviously a link. I think it, it,
2: there is there is definitely a link, but there is also, um, I think they, it needs to be dissociated because we truth value is more about whether you see that happen in the real world. So if you say there's a bag of potatoes and this I'm taking, has to from, be a statement
0: about the world.
2: Yeah, so, so it has to be true. Or false. Exactly, true or false. There's a state. There's a bag of potatoes in the corner of the room. Now that's about truth or falsity. If So you, if it's true, if there is actually a bag of potatoes in the corner of the room. On the other hand, the meaning uh, of the sentence essentially comes from the constituent parts, which are the words or the morphemes put together in a certain order. So that's the meaning of it. So even but though these hmm, are
0: sentences Prathar, about about facts and objects and whatever, how do you talk about things which are in the future and which are intentions and so on?
2: Right. So if you say John believes, John believes that uh, the world is flat, right? Or the earth is flat. Uh, so if you, it's almost like saying John believes P. So there is a proposition which John believes. Now that uh, you can say it's true or false only if P is true or false. But the same thing that we said about uh, the meaning of a single sentence, of a simple sentence, that holds here also. So yeah. the earth is flat. It will have its own meaning depending on the meaning of its constituent parts. Uh, but it's truth or falsity will depend on whether it really is the fact in the actual world.
0: Yeah, but here the belief may be a statement of
2: fact. Exactly. About John it's it's almost it? like a belief box, right? Yeah. And then you say, believe P, believe X and, and anything X. can go in
0: place of P. Yeah. What does truth mean for you?
3: <laughs> it is a kind of a, maybe a presence, a kind of a presence that you... Like when people say no, you said mystic, no like sometimes you know a person is a mystic because there is a presence which you feel that it is not not a performative presence. it's not performing a presence. It's something there which is, similarly, there is a lot of time you encounter something which the presence stays with you, stays with you for a very long time, and that you are trying to unravel. you know and, and unraveling that part is probably your engagement with truth. Uh, which to me, truths are not revealed. Truths are something that encounters, and that's something that is unraveling, and you're investigating in your own way. Uh, so a lot of the artistic truths are are some kind of an entry point to those unravelings that stays with you. There, there, you know, like a few days back, I was in the with the, my brother, and they, we were with talking to a monk, uh, a nun. And she said a very... They were discussing this word by Ram Krishna she, He says uh, about one about one of his disciples that I've take, I've called him from the house of the Akhand. Akhand is the indi, invisible... Ind, ind, indivisible. Indivisible. indivisible huh? So what does it mean? Uh, so calling someone from the house of the Akhand doesn't mean... House is a site of intimacy and a closure. And Akhand is the the expansive. Right. Yeah. So, what does this mean? So, this, I think, is the unravelling. So, I think, and, and I could see in my brother that he has been trying to unravel this in his head. He's a scientist and he is he, intrigued by this line and he's unravelling it. So, that's the truth of it. It is a statement by a mystic. It is a statement that has no explanation. It has travelled about 150 years through various other monks and retelling. But, that that as a force, something gathering that has to be unraveled slowly, which is not claiming a truth to itself. But in that unraveling, you are meeting other things. And I think that is what art does very well sometimes when it is allowed to be encountered. When it it is weighed, judged, valued, it doesn't work like very well. But when it allowed to be encountered to you and it carries a truth presence, which then you unravel over a long period of time, uh, which is your lifetime or hopefully something that stays over longer, longer period of time.
0: What is truth, Ashok? And uh, how does language help with either accessing it or articulating it, uh, accessing it? You see, what's the link between truth and language? Let me
1: refer a little bit to the discussion you just had. Yeah. That is, to some extent, It's our responsibility to put limitations on the exploration of language and its relationship with the world which we do. Mm -hmm. That is, language related to the world in grammar, linguistics is one type of investigation. Language related to poetry is another type of uh, investigation. Everywhere we will have to expand or limit the uh, field of inquiry. That does not mean one is less important than the other. It also does not mean one is less reflective of the world than the other. These are uh, different inquiries which we should do, but we should also understand that we have to put limitations if we want anything to come out of this inquiry. So that's one thing. So Poetic truth and factual truth are considered different. Uh, what you consider... You know, that f-
0: sense reference difference, right? I mean, yes, but, but
1: correspondence theory of truth, right? which is in symbolic logic, that's important. For example, a mathematician Tarski said, snow is white if and only if snow is indeed white. Right. Know? So right. That, that that shows that it's related to what other means we use to determine the nature of yeah, snow. Yeah, The
0: old deflationary idea. And so Correct. Right. So that's
1: why it is. Now, what does truth mean to me and other things? Uh, one thing...
0: I think specifically because we're discussing this in the context of language.
1: Yes. Right. I mean, how does... There are two ways. One one modern way is uh, that it just makes a statement. Uh, depending on your trust in the person making the statement, you accept it as truth or not, or you accept it tentatively, may be true, that all choices are there. In the ancient Indian way, there is one more uh, possibility—that is, the uh, truth that you accept will not be immediately known to you. If your capabilities as a, as an observer, as a student, uh, as an inquirer change, it may become true for you. So uh, we don't, uh, you know, uh, depend. So this is t-
0: this is. Capability-dependent or it, it, just it, merely... The
1: possibility was... is entertained. It's not assertion that it it's capability-dependent, but it's a good possibility to admit because, you see, uh, I don't have a musical ear, for example. But, <laughs> uh, you know, but with practice, I may gain some capability. That does not mean I created a new reality. It simply means I changed my observing apparatus to uh perceive something that i could not perceive before so th- we have to accept that same thing with uh, yogic capabilities uh, pulse reading or whatever it is with practice you can improve your capabilities so truth is dependent also on the observer to some extent that uh, if the observer is willing to learn this is mo- this is what modern science not does not frequently take into account Correct. Right? That is, and uh, the, the the ancient Indian tradition has taken into account. You may agree with it or not. That's an, another matter. But we are considering here the history of relationship between word and w- world, and we have to keep that one tra- significant tradition of intellectual life uh, has admitted it that it's possible. And,
0: and is this something that can be learned any time? Do do, can it be thought of as an organ?
2: Language, language, language. No, there is a timeline. There is a biological timeline for it. Again, depends mm-hmm. on what we mean by language. Words can be learned, um, probably not morphemes, um, you know, but uh, language, which means the structure of a language is difficult to learn after the age of puberty sets in. And there are, there are lots of examples, well, uh, th- unfortunate think, examples um, of human beings who were not, who could not uh, uh, I think learn the interesting language. question
0: be why is that the case? why are we not able to pick up languages whenever we
2: well uh, this for the same reason that you have impaired vision if you have cataract in your eyes when you're born and the and the cataract is not removed before the age of 2
0: so because because in that case of a cataract some degeneration is setting in um so what is the equivalent of the degeneration in the context of language? Like so, what is lost or what is ossified or whatever?
2: Okay, so basically what this means is that it's there is a capability, uh, an innate ability, and that has to be triggered or um, you know, set um, within a given time span. And you have to, for that to um, get triggered, you have to have some kind of linguistic data from the environment, um, physical you know, sounds coming in, sentences coming in, and that triggers. And when you don't get that within the given timeline, your grammar will not come. Um, similarly, for words, if you just come down to words, um, the, these morphemes, these affixes like ing, running. So ing will not come. Um, S, I, I, he eats food, for instance, uh, which are very context sensitive. These will not come.
0: So if I was born and somebody kept me in a dungeon till the age of 30 and I then came out into the world and I started hearing everything, I wouldn't be able to...
2: Yeah, we won't be having this discussion. To,
0: I wouldn't be able to pick up language then.
2: Absolutely not.
0: It's, I find it crazy. <laughs> Do you find it crazy? I mean, no, but why? that's an
1: emotive reaction to it. It's a fact of life <laughs> that you lose certain capabilities.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but zidh hona chayye. hona There must be some biological basis, basis <laughs> for that. So there's something... Right? Is there a is there a biological reason why that happens?
2: Yes, there is a language organ. A pha- um, a phasier, uh. Yeah, there is a language organ, and there is enough uh, empirical evidence to suggest that part of your linguistic ability is there in the left hemisphere, in different parts distributed all over your left hemisphere, and that comes partly from the you know we have evidence uh, from kids who are not exposed to linguistic data in the uh, in the um, uh, you know. Um, Time frame, and then we also have questions of aphasia. If you meet up with an accident and your left hemisphere or parts of the left hemisphere where language is located is, uh, is damaged, then you end up losing linguistic uh, abilities. Uh, yeah, there are lots of, and also sometimes you have um, perfectly fine cognitive abilities, but you don't have language, like specific language impairment cases where cognitive abilities are fine, but language is not there. Linguistic abilities are, are really poor. So, there is evidence that so those would be uh, certain some of kinds of innate.
0: dyslexia and I mean
2: uh dyslexia I, I, I am not very sure about dyslexia, but I hear that dyslexia uh, can be cured. And Amir Khan definitely set the tone for that. But
3: you need art. So you, need art.
2: <laughs> you
3: need to have art teacher to clear. Yeah,
2: you need, right. Painter. Painter. Painting, right. Um, but uh, I'm not very sure. But yeah, I mean, definitely other kinds of... So we have brokers of physics who um, lose the ability to produce sounds or to produce sentences. And this may happen due to a stroke, for instance, to very like elderly people. Or young people also if they meet up with an accident and they lose the ability to produce sentences and it's not a pro- problem with just articulation. It's a problem with a lot of other, uh, you know, articulation of let's say function words like uh, the ing or the s. And
0: because we're discussing the world as well and not just the language domain from whatever is known or whatever you know, you think it changes the picture they have of the world? Or is it is it just the manifestation of how things are being communicated? You, you know what I mean, the... The internal picture of the world or please, please correct me if I'm wrong on any of this.
2: Yeah, It's a good question. I don't, I will not be able to say exactly if the cognitive skills change entirely. Definitely it has an impact on their, uh, on the rest of their uh, cognitive abilities. This is very uh, common that you, there is, if you lose part of your linguistic abilities, your behavioral uh, traits change, Uh, maybe not drastically always, but there are changes. Um, the way you conceive of the world or the society around you will also change, uh, because you can't remember things. You cannot uh, make sense sometimes. You s- you see parts of reality, or maybe some of those skills are also heightened, but definitely other abilities get uh, impaired because of that.
0: What what is your hunch on this, Ashok?
1: No, uh, in some respects, science has helped us and uh, located the problem areas in the brain or any other parts of the body. Uh, In some respects, we simply have to hope that it will go ahead and help us. But uh, (laughs) why assume that we can solve every problem in this uh, domain we have selected for discussion? We we just drive different things. No, of course. Yeah, we cannot do anything more than that.
0: What do do artists do with words? Do they
3: need it? Yeah, because otherwise i will not be able to have a conversation <laughs> with people who think i should <laughs> be painting <laughs> so the question is question is that we need we live in a world where, see we live in a but, world but huh? that, so that's
0: the artist going around as a human being which obviously an artist is a human being no, as well we so that's need, fine need but work, i the, i
3: am uh, see, see there the was the once a very
0: of creating art in the and, and again i am trying c- c- to limit it and i'm trying to no, put boundaries there are a lot around. of artists
3: have every artist have their own method and art, art follows, art, there's a lot of rigor in the practice of art making. So like I work in a collective, three of us, we need to work out a lot of conversation. But those conversations are not about the making of the work. Those conversations as kind of continuously, we'll meet every day, we work for four, five hours every day. It's about everything in the world. And there's kind of, they move around and they kind of shape the kind of environment in which the work emerges. So there are words, there are words, there are words and appreciation of words of others. There are appreciation of words of million others and uh, continuously thinking through the other people's thinking. But also being aware that sometimes world escapes is more, the this word. This is more than a communication function, right? Even in those discussions. No, is, it's not communication. It's not communicating anything. Right. Like, uh, <laughs> like I was talking about this Abhinash uh, sable he he is going to be in the tokyo olympics 3500s he He's broken all national record in a very short period of span and his his journey is amazing but he says oh, hai, you know bus zid hai. Now zid is, is not communication it, what bus doesn't mean anything it, in a sense that he says something is in me that is but what it, what, it is it has a metronomic metronomic power i think and i can use it in many of my art uh, art art circle conversation what does this Avinash Shabless line, subzid can can conjure for us? So that's the transition. You know, those are translations you're making between word in the world and the artistic gestures that surround us that you're continuously working with. So a sportsman's journey is also somewhere giving you that frame, that word. Like what you were saying, frame is that this, this search is for that word. So that that can, which kind of propels you to something which is very indecisive, you know. You really don't know what it is.
1: Let so. me add one more thing. There's a question of artificial languages, which was very, very important question for philosophers be, at the beginning of the 20th century, Carnap and others. Yeah. Um, we can create our Esperanto, you know, artificial language, but these languages begin to behave like natural languages. This is a very interesting phenomenon. That is, we may say this word will have only this meaning and we'll continue to use it. It doesn't stay that way. It acquires its own connotations and begins to mean many different things to different people at different times. So there is something in us in which, given the basic elements of natural uh, natural language, even artificial languages are,
0: naturalized, are so
1: naturalized and this is a very interesting phenomenon we we, we uh, you know ideal languages were created by carnap and others but they also began to ultimately have emotive contents so uh, this is uh, we we should note that that's why language is so fundamental to us
0: so what is an open question where is uh, what is not well understood Ashok
1: Oh, why this is? That is, what are the features of natural language which are so basic to our being that they infiltrate also the artificial language? Correct? Right? You know, that, that's, that's the base. That's not clear. But, but it has to be admitted. What's an open question, Pritha?
0: What is an open question in, in this context, in the context that we're having today? I, obviously, not on that artificial language question. What is not so well understood?
2: Um, I think the constraints, um, hmm. I mean, definitely a lot has been done in the last 60, 70 years on trying to understand the constraints of uh, natural language. Um, but does the, from world, a theoretical
0: perspective. does the world change the language in the long run?
2: The world changed the language. Um,
0: For example, I don't know whether that's the right case, but you know, when you speak about old English becoming new English, what leads to transitions like that?
2: The world has remained the same, (laughs) as far as I see. Um, I mean, the world is also changing, but our languages are not. Um, I think it's not... uh,
0: What leads to grammar changes? Is there a way of saying something? Quite a
2: few things. Some of them are completely internal to the mind, um, internal to the grammar of a language. So it's one small change happens in Middle English, and a lot of other things just fall out, like domino effects. Uh, And... um, there is also assimilation. So, if you have a conquest by, you know, by let's say a different um, language-speaking community, then two languages mixing up and coming together will form a new language. There will be a new grammar. But again, all these when grammars.
0: You say, I think you mentioned like a minute ago that there's something internal to the mind which might lead to so, which might lead to such a change in the grammar.
2: In yeah, so such
0: if, as what?
2: So in uh, in Old English, uh, it's said that. Um, um the auxiliary and the modals, when they underwent change, that led to a lot of changes in the word order, in the case morphology, in inflectional markings, the same things that I was talking about, you know, when, when you have ing or s. So a lot of changes happen. English is morphologically, we call it morphologically poor language, not meaning that English does not have words. It means that morphologically, in terms of the, let's say, the amount of, let's say, John, those differences won't show up in English. Um, So English became a morphologically poor language because one small change happened for perhaps grammar internal reason or perhaps because of outside pressure. Uh, pressure in the sense, you know, there was there was maybe a community mix-up or maybe a mix up with another language. Um so small small change happens and then you see a lot of other changes coming into the grammar such that almost a new grammar is created. But having said that, the new grammar that is created is also within the realm of the gram- possible grammars. It does not become a Martian grammar. Right? It's not it cannot be an impossible language. So our our the number of languages we can have is always constrained. Uh, the number of words we can have can change from language to language. But again, words meaning what we get to hear. But I have all, I mean, I think this is what I was trying to say all through is that um, we are essentially looking at least as a linguist, I would rather look at the internal structure of a word and say this is word and these are the constraints on words. And therefore, when I use words to conceptualize a reality, I'm actually looking at the constraints through which I have to conceptualize reality. There is no way that I can... Uh, look at the reality and, and see the reality as a Martian because I don't have those capabilities. A Martian may have a different language and therefore we'll look at the same object uh, with but a the different language. But Martian dial. will
0: have its own world.
2: Exactly. No, but even if they land in, on the earth
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> and they live in the same dimension as us.
0: How does the world change the language,
1: Ashok? We don't understand the process fully, but we know that it's gradual it's very step small step at a time uh, and that that much we can be certain we also know that it will not change the number of phonemes or uh, some syntactic constraints the language has which ones exactly it will change we don't know but uh, there will be a limited number that, uh, that's given to us so it's a whether these are and do
0: you allow for things like randomness, accident, chance, and things like that, um, even at the level of the grammar, something fundamental? Yes, but
1: it's so minuscule that it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting for ordinary discussions, but uh, it's not really, well, in the long term, the most effective cause. That is, uh, especially when two languages come together, changes do take place. Uh, It's like um, uh, genetic changes. That is, genetic changes are very much step by step. It takes a long time before scientists identify them. But uh, uh, what extent, what their extent will be, what exactly will cause the change, we still don't know. The same thing here. That's why even in hard laboratory-based science, we have saying randomness. You know, principle of randomness is there. That's one way of saying that we as human beings have our limitations. That's a humbling thought, but we should have it.
0: <laughs> and we have our limitations because the world has constraints and physical laws and so on. I mean, it's yeah. not, yes. it's not, limit. the the world is not limitless. Yes. It's like we... We we'll land with you, Jibesh. What's, it's like, what's going it's to like happen? you
3: say that we the people, very <laughs> powerful line that con- constitute a lot of the a lot of the way in which 20th century saw itself is best imagination. So if the word people start expanding, now it is shrinking, very, very mm-hmm. you know, whimsical, uh, violent ways. But if you expand the idea of the people to incorporate 5-7 billion people, incorporate the non-humans, incorporate the cause, you may have a completely different... Then uh, you may fe- change the meaning of the word people itself. People itself and you may change the word we itself. And you put a <laughs> pressure to create a different imaginary. I think that's always present. That's always present. In this conversation also it is present. That expansiveness that will then give us a new, not just a constraint, but a new kind of a limit that we will unravel again.
0: What is present in this conversation?
3: This sense of an expansiveness, always battling out an expansiveness. You've set up a constraint, but it's something that is pulling it towards another dimension.
0: And where is art headed?
3: Well, art it, art inhabits that space. Sometimes shrunk in a shrunk way, sometimes very marginalised way, sometimes in a uh, illegitimate way, and sometimes in a very very glorious. Like we were discussing, we remember Van Gogh's years. So we remember something about that form of, of a certain kind of intensity, a certain kind of intensity. We remember of, of, of life that art sometimes give us an kind of avenue towards. Like any any practice, like a music would give or like even mysticism can give, like great uh, kind of scholarship can give.
0: And Pritha, we'll end with you. You, you. you allow for the direct access, like things like mysticism and so on. I know it's not a territory, but is, do you allow for it?
2: Direct access between the word and the
0: yeah. world? Unmediated by the word. By uh, the word,
2: yeah. Um... I think, uh, like I mean, not every, of course, the you know, cognitive
0: person in you, is there a way of
2: for go? a human, a word will be very important, a uh, word and its structure will be very important to understand the world will be important. But I think we among humans, we have different abilities, some of us do not speak in that case, um, you know, our gestures, our body language can also be used to understand the world and communicate with others. Um uh, but we also have vision and other other kinds of modalities uh, to understand the world. But if you take an ant, for example, you know a desert ant um, does not have language, and yet the desert ant can understand the reality in what, whatever limited way the desert ant can, um, and in wonderful ways, in with powers which are not which we are not equipped with. You know, if you leave a Tunisian ant in a desert. And uh, it goes out, it comes out of his nest and goes out in search of food, uh, goes around zig- in a zigzag fashion because it's just searching for food. And then it has this sense that at every step, it is actually taking care of its location, where it is with respect to the sun's uh, location. And when it finds food, the first thing it does is turns around, comes in a straight line back to its nest. So that's very, very impressive cognitive power. And that's a very interesting way of looking at the world or understanding the world without language. So I'm sure there are other ways of understanding the world as well. Uh, language obviously makes it... Uh, but you
0: you would include humans in that along with the ants and others? No,
2: I wouldn't. I would say <laughs> so that language, language gives us a different dimension. And uh, I think syntax and the fact that we can actually so combine... For you,
0: for you, language would always be present as far as humans go. Um in this in this understanding the world business. So
2: yeah, so yes, I mean definitely. As long as language is the ability to put together things, we basically understand the world in much more complex way. We can combine things. So we probably if if you take a Tunisian ant, it may actually look at the world as consisting of discrete events or discrete objects. We on the other hand, because of our linguistic abilities, are able to bring things together. So we can negate sentences, like I can say the sun is not going down. The sun is going down, not. I want food, not. I could have just put the negation and the event separately, whereas I have put them together because of this ability that I have of having or creating sentences. So
0: when you look at a work of art... Um,
2: work of art? Yeah, work okay. of art. Because <laughs> I mean, there is this
0: world which Jibesh is kind of uh, representing here. Now, in, I think you just mentioned, and I want to know whether there's a weak or strong version of that because all these things are gradients. That there is language involved in any any business of understanding the world, so any 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 access or apprehension or whatever access to a work of art would always. So you would you would do that with language.
2: Um. Definitely. I mean, if language is helping us understand the world in different ways. In
0: your case, I mean, if, so when you look at a work of art,
2: huh.
0: to the extent that you're able to reflect on it and respond to it, and I don't want to.
2: Sometimes we think in images also. We did not always think in language. Uh, Language helps us understand definitely the world better. But um, I can look at a piece of art and just think in in images. And I think I agree with Jibesh to a certain extent that it's also breaking the boundaries. So sometimes you write poetry because you, you do not understand your present context or cannot put it in words. And therefore you want to break you know, or whatever you ha- have, you just want to break open that the gates, or uh, you know, uh, open uh, the gates and go forward, right? So it's a way of poetry, literature, anything of that sort. I think would be again, I mean, from a very novice perspective, I think is more about um, doing things or and trying to understand the world in non-conventional ways. Whether we do it with words or without words, with language or without language, uh, whether language actually puts constraints on a, on the way we can think. Um, in a non-conventional terms, I'm not very sure.
0: How do you uh, understand art, Ashok? Do you? Is it is it for you when you do that? And this is the question to you, not you as a human being when you look at a work of art. I, you you already taken music out of it. You said you don't have a musical ear, so that goes out of the window. But to the
1: no no is that
0: linguistically <laughs> mediated your your process of trying to understand art to the extent that you do it.
1: I believe that language is definitely involved. Not a particular language, but generally whatever language you deal with, all languages. Uh, And uh, language is... In your
0: case, this is not a metaphysical question.
1: No, no. In my case, that is, uh, I understand imperfectly compared to others. I can admit that to myself. But uh, I do use l- language all the time. Even our gestures have certain meanings because conventions have been established by words. You know, that's why, uh, that's what my favorite author bharat Hari said, you know, uh, that is, Akshini uh, kojadi nama pishab eva Anumapakatwam. That's what he said of uh, different movements of of, uh, eyes that we do, and then you get the meaning. Suppose I'm saying something inappropriate and you don't want me to say it, you will have uh, a particular eye movement. And I may not have precise words to capture what your eyes indicated, but because I have a totality of words, I understand that you are asking me to shut up.
0: <laughs> I think that's a good that's a good note to end this on. Yes. <laughs> Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for Thank coming. You. Thanks.